so the goal today is we're going to be finishing 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So in your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll be starting in verse 25. Before we read the passage this morning, just a bit of recap of what we've been discussing through this chapter within so far the larger context of 1 Corinthians, which is we have a church, a New Testament church, that by all accounts, especially from our standards, would be a baby church. Right? They didn't have generations upon generations of teachers. For a lot of these people, these men, these women, these children, they have come out of a life of paganism and, and false worship. And even for the Jews that had converted, there were elements that they needed to put off based on the traditions that were taught to them, uh, that were the traditions of men, but taught to them as the doctrines of God. So there's putting off for them as well as for the pagan community as well. And so you have a mixture of both in the Corinthian church. So naturally, you can imagine that there would be some disunity like we've talked about. There'd be some strife within the congregation. Paul would have to address some issues of morality and ethics. How do we as Christians live not only in a world that is so uh, far from God and so rebellious towards God in so many ways, but how do we live now that we've come out of that? What is the, what is what is right? What is wrong? And remember, we'd also talked, you know, they, they had the Old Testament scriptures, but not the access like we have today. So there's a, there's a learning curve that is taking place here. And so in these questions that the Corinthian church had for Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, we started talking about marriage and divorce. And then we talked about... Um, Remaining where we are, that's what Pastor Keith spoke about last week, of really, uh, in, in some sense, being content in where God has placed you, not looking with this idea that the grass is greener somewhere else, but instead recognizing that where God has saved you, He wants you to be a minister of the gospel. And he ha- you know, you're not here by accident. You, wherever you were saved, if you were saved in prison, if you were saved when you were eight years old, if you were saved in a different state, you know, I mean, wherever you are, it was not by accident. And so Paul was addressing that with this church as well. Now for them, maybe the issue was not so much, you know, leaving Corinth, but the issue was more like we talked about with circumcision versus uncircumcision. Wanting to look like a Jew, wanting to look like a Gentile, being discontent with what you are and where God has called you. The same thing with slavery. You know, like Pastor Keith said last week, we can get so hung up sometimes on the social issues that we really forget that uh, in light of uh, the good and bad of society, God wants people everywhere. To minister. And so this then leads us uh, into our passage this morning, starting in verse 25 and through the end of chapter 7, where Paul is then going to discuss uh, now concerning virgins. So, and we'll talk about that in a second, but 
He talks about um, married couples, right? You're married, don't get divorced. What if we're married to a non-believer? He discusses that. What about the singles, right? So he addresses married, singles, and now he's going to get to the virgins here. So let's pray, and then I want us to, uh, after we're done praying, we'll stand and read the word for this morning, and we'll get into our passage. Heavenly Father, Lord, bless this time together as we open your word, especially, well, I will say, especially in a passage like this where maybe, just maybe, the first time we read through it, people may wonder how this would even apply to them. But Lord, your word is strong and sufficient and infallible, and all of it is God-breathed. All of it is from you and useful for reproof and correction and training and righteousness, Lord. And so I pray that this morning as we are in your word, and Lord, that you would use me to preach in such a way that I would be as clear as I possibly can be, but recognizing that it's the communication by your Holy Spirit that changes hearts. And so I pray for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the impending crisis, it is well for you to remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you do not sin, and if a virgin marries, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will experience in this life, and I would spare you that. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let even those who have wives be as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord, But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, pleases his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord." If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his fiancée, if his passions are strong, and so it has to be, let him marry as he wishes. It is no sin. Let them marry. But if someone stands firm in his resolve, being under no but having his own desire under control, and has determined in his own mind to keep her as his fiancée, he will do well. So then, he who marries his fiancée does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is more blessed if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord.
All right, so that was probably clear enough, right? We can just... <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's, let's, let's break this down. Uh, and the way I have it broken down is that I think Paul, uh, really, it's, it's almost like one of these passages where until you understand the big picture, like all the little things are not really going to make much sense. So um, Paul has certain scriptures that actually relate to each other within uh, this passage. First, starting in, in 7.25 to 27, Paul continues this idea of remain where you are. And he starts with concerning virgins. And our first question may be, okay, so what does he mean by virgins? Who are the virgins in this scenario? Well, they are unmarried, but in light of the context of what Paul is speaking about, it's more probable than not that he's speaking to betrothed couples. Now, now think about how this would make sense. Paul speaks to the married, and he says, do not divorce. He speaks to those married to non-believers, and he says, do not get divorced. But if they leave, you are free, right? He speaks to the singles, and he says, do not marry, right? You, you don't need to get married. It would probably be better if you stayed single. Then he speaks to uh, the remaining in your circumstances, which would leave one major group probably questioning, well, what does this say about us? For a married person, it's pretty easy to remain married. For a single person, it's pretty easy to remain single. You just stay in what you're doing. But what about the betrothed? What about those who are engaged? Because they're not really in a place where it's like, well, do we just stay engaged forever? Or are we in the singles group? Or based on the ancient understanding of betrothed, would we fall more into the marriage group? So Paul is speaking, more specifically in our passage, true, the betrothed, to the engaged. And so Paul gives his judgment, he says, it's not from the Lord, but from myself. And what he's talking about is not that it's uh, absent of the Lord's word. Paul has apostolic authority to speak to the church. It is still the word of God that is written here in 1 Corinthians. But what Paul's saying is, I don't have, like we talked a few weeks ago, when Paul says, well, not I, but the Lord says this, he's appealing back to the teaching of Jesus, especially like the Sermon on the Mount, which would have been a very popular and famous teaching at this point. Um, he's appealing back to that. Well, in this case, he, he doesn't have that to appeal to. So he's saying, I'm saying this to you, that in light of this impending crisis, right, in light of this impending crisis, it is well for you to remain as you are. I wanted to dissect this a little bit for us this morning, this impending crisis. Two uh, Greek words, which I'm sure you care so much about, but the first one is anistemi, which is it's this idea of the present state, so, or even like something that is at hand. So impending works pretty well there. Uh, some of your translations may say a present crisis. This is something that is either here or very near at this point that Paul is speaking about. And the next word, which is anake, 
is distress or calamity. And in fact, it's used by Jesus in Luke 21 when he's speaking about tribulation. So um, this has led scholars to come to uh, different conclusions as to what in the world this present crisis or this impending crisis may be that Paul is talking about. One of the more popular ones is that Paul may be speaking in light of the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming persecution on the church. This fits well with verse 29 to 31. And it also fits well with the way that uh, this language is used even back in Jeremiah 16 with the impending doom of Babylon upon Jerusalem. And this idea even of present tribulations works even with what John speaks about in Revelation chapter 1, where he says, I, John, who am in the tribulation with you to these seven churches. So regardless of, um, uh, regardless even of when this end time state could have been understood to, take, to be taking place, there's still tribulation happening in the early church, just like the church still goes through tribulation now. There are some areas in this world where for the church, you know, for us, it's like, oh, times are, times are getting bad, but they're still pretty decent. But that's not the case for everybody. For other Christians in other countries, they look at Revelation, they go, man, this has got to be here now because this is the tribulation. How much worse could it get for us? So it could be about the persecution that's kind of coming upon the church at this time. But it could also be about a a current famine in the land that was taking place at this time or around this time. There's a severe famine that was across the whole world that was predicted in Acts chapter 11. Or it could also be that the present distress that Paul is talking about is the current state of the Corinthian church itself. You are in this present crisis right now as a church because you're full of sexual immorality and division and moral confusion. And like I said, you can imagine why this would be taking place because of the transition of Jew and Gentile coming in as one body now, as one people. And so the advice from Paul could be to hold off on some of these major life decisions until you are better discipled. And this might also fit the context of remaining as you are in light of what Pastor Keith had preached last week, which is stay and be faithful and rest in God's timing and His sanctifying work in your life right now. So it's good to remain, as Paul says. But, but this, is not, this idea of it is good to remain is not about like virtue. It's more about function, Right? The celibate life, the life of, of, of being celibate is not necessarily any more godly than the life of being married. And the reason I, I, I need to bring that up is because there has been some traditions of men that are taught like doctrines of God even about celibacy. See, celibacy cannot be just that Paul cannot be saying that celibacy is better in the sense that it is more holy or more godly because Paul can't contradict Genesis 2 where God says it is not good for man to be alone. Paul also can't be contradicting the first commandment given to man, which is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And there's no indication in Scripture that that command was ever rescinded. In fact, even after the fall, 
God gives the same command to Noah as well. Paul also speaks very highly of marriage in other passages in Scripture. He speaks highly of marriage in the book of Titus and in 1 Timothy. In fact, he speaks so highly of marriage in Ephesians 5 that he even compares it to Christ and his bride, the church. So Paul is not coming down hard on marriage here in this passage. He is instead addressing something particular in the church in this present context. He is not, 1 Corinthians 7 is not um, the be-all, end-all of, of finding Paul's biblical theology of marriage and divorce. And the reason why this is important is because, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, the danger of proof-texting passages like this leads people into great confusion concerning their marriage, concerning their relationships, concerning divorce and what is permissible. Um, and so uh, a couple ways that this is kind of been an issue in the history of the church is that the danger is that if singleness is holier and that's what is communicated, then people who should not be single will end up battling in the flesh and they will fail. We see this in the Catholic church where Catholic priests are forced to be celibate. It's a holier life. You're called to singleness and devotion to the Lord. But yet in Martin Luther's day, Catholic priests sleeping with prostitutes was pretty high. And now we're dealing with even modern issues with the Catholic Church and priests and pedophilia. But even beyond the the Catholic Church, I mean, if that's what we communicate to Christians that, look, celibacy is a higher call, it's holier, it's better if you're single, then what we end up having, having in the church are single people who are addicted to lust and pornography or thinking and constantly dwelling on sex because in some way what they are doing is fighting against God's design for them in the flesh instead of recognizing what the passage is actually communicating. And so the danger is that you can have many well-meaning people, even well-meaning preachers who have used this text to convince people that they are gifted with singleness because of failed marriages or they still haven't met the right person or past sexual sins. And oftentimes it even creates a negative view of marriage because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And so if this is used out of context, you can imagine the chaos that this could easily create in the body of Christ. And not only that, it doesn't fit with the context of how Genesis to Revelation speaks about marriage. So we cannot overextend Paul to make bad surface-level applications. And churches who do this end up having having people who are single that should be open to marriage, divorced couples that should actually be married and are still living in sin and adultery, men and women stuck in various forms of sexual immorality because they're trying to be single and holier in the flesh, which is interesting because it's exactly the issue that's happening in Corinth that Paul addresses. People who, are, who think it's holier to be single, and so they try in the flesh to put off the 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 good things that God has designed them for, and they fail. 
Also, surface-level application, and I'm kind of rounding out the whole chapter here since we'll be moving on from 1 Corinthians 7 after this, but uh, within this chapter, using out of context, like we said a couple weeks ago, is husbands demanding wives meet their every sexual need and desire on their timing, using passages like, hey, look, your body's not your own, it belongs to me now. And couples who think they need to stay together and stay married that should really be separated because of abuse and neglect happening in the relationship. And so when you take a surface-level view of Paul and you use him out of context, you create these dangers within the church. But not only that, then you also create a negative view of marriage from a biblical perspective anyway. And so what happens is you have this overall negative view of uh, marriage and singleness because it's not readily and correctly understood with what Paul's saying. And so you have boyfriends and girlfriends that live together and fornicate and yet still call themselves Christians. You have families that allow this to take place in their homes with no repercussions. You have Christian men and women who date but have uh, difficulty having any sort of real long-term commitment. And in a lot of ways, you have adults who just find it better to remain like boys instead of growing up and becoming men. Now, does any of that ring true in the church today in the West? Yeah, absolutely. Everywhere. And I'm telling you that a lot of this comes not just from 1 Corinthians 7, but when passages like 1 Corinthians 7 are abused and misused. When I was first a freshman at Moody, I had come out of this rebellious time in my life, and um, I remained where I was for a season, but God then called me to Bible college And I got to Moody, and um, I was convinced that because of my past and because of my rebellion and and all this stuff that I was just going to be single for the rest of my life. In fact, I was so convinced of it that uh, a few months into Moody in October, they had their mission conference, and they had this seminar on singles going into the mission field. And so at this point, I was like, I think I'm called to be single and and do something like going to the mission field. So I went to the seminar Seemed all right. There was no issues. And then I think it was at the end of that week that I met Michelle. So, um, Paul does bring this up again, though, in verses 38 to 40. He says, so then he who marries his fiance does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if the husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wants in the Lord. But in my judgment, it is more blessed if she remains as she that I too have the Spirit of God. So Paul is giving this counsel in light of this present crisis. What is Paul concerned with? Well, he says the one who marries his virgin, right, his betrothed, his fiance does well. It's fine. He who refrains does better in light of this present crisis. Because Paul's concern goes all the way back to verse 19, which is that you would obey the commands of God. God commands some to get married. God commands others to remain single. God commands some to be slaves, and he has some to be free. Some are to sell everything and go into the mission field, and some are to remain and own businesses and work and raise families. To the betrothed, 
Just like to the married and to the singles, it's the same thing. Obey God's commandment. And if you can do that in this present crisis and postpone the marriage, then that's better. If you cannot, then you still do well to get married. But why might Paul say it is better to remain during this present crisis? Now this takes us to our uh, next passage. Oh, I didn't turn this on. This takes us to our next passage. Thank you. But if you marry, you do not sin. And if a virgin marries, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will experience distress in this life, and I would spare you that. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his fiancée, if his passions are strong, and so it has to be, let him marry as he wishes. It is no sin. Let them marry. But if someone stands firm in his resolve, being under no necessity, but having his own desire under control, and has determined in his own mind to keep her as his fiancée, he will do well. So marriage is not a sin, but it does bring distress in this life. Right? So it's not a sin to get married. In fact, Paul says, you do well. It is still a good thing in the eyes of God to get married if you are called. But we, are, we do need to be aware that it comes with certain tribulations. And this is actually the phrasing uh, that Paul uses. The, the literal translation is tribulation in the flesh. See, Paul's view of marriage is not the cultural view of troubled marriages. Right? Paul's view of when he says that you will have tribulation in the flesh, that you will have distress in this life, he's not saying, you know, because of the old ball and chain. That's not what he's saying. The distress in this life is because there are certain responsibilities and afflictions of marriage that spring from the cares of the world. As John Calvin writes, John Calvin said, um, so, uh, the, and the reality is, is this is what takes place, right? What, what, when you are married, what happens? You are then covenantly bonded, right? You become one with another sinner. And then you most likely will produce little baby sinners. <laughs> and then you will have to care for each other and those baby sinners and put their needs before your own. Now, if you're single, and that's the life God has called you to, then that is something that you are spared from. That's a kind of tribulation of the flesh that you are not dealing with. It's not virtuously wrong or right as long as it is what God has called you to. It is a blessing, whatever life he has called you to. But you have to remember that if, it, if marriage is what God has called you to, you will experience certain tribulations. You know, Proverbs talks about a man leaving an inheritance for his grandchildren. That is a tribulation of the flesh. Because you know what? That means there's a responsibility that you are not just looking to your kids. You're actually looking generations down the line of how can I be a godly man now, right? So that generations down the line, there is fruit being produced. Same thing with a woman. A married woman has the responsibility to submit to her husband. Okay, and as Proverbs 31 teaches us, she has a lot of responsibilities because not only does now she have a home to take care of, but she also has the gifts that God has given her to utilize within the home and in the community. This is, this is a kind of tribulation of the flesh. It's not, it's not morally bad, right? But it is a, certainly a challenge 
that is given to those who are married. And husbands, likewise, have the responsibility to love their wives and build up their wives, right? Washing them in the word of God, treating them with gentleness, protecting their wives. And I'll tell you this too, as, as a husband, when, you, when you're trying to uh, seek after the Lord, and you know, that, that, it's so funny, as I heard a joke, there's a guy who said, yeah, everyone wants the Proverbs 31 woman, but they just don't want to be the Proverbs 1 through 30 man. Right, men that have the responsibility as well to not just be like, yeah, my wife needs to be that Proverbs 31 woman, but to actually be the Proverbs 1 through 30 man and the responsibility of looking after her and looking after your kids, right? So these are the kind of things that Paul's saying, look, right now in this present crisis, in what is going on here, I'm just telling you, it's going to be difficult, And one of the reasons that I think this is talking about persecution is because one of the ways this will be difficult is there's going to be a level of ostracization from the community. Jews, you will not be treated as a covenant member any longer. You will be ousted by the community and probably by your family. There will be issues in the marketplace. There will be issues in getting together with other non-believers. There will be issues when it comes to work. And you know what that means? That means now you're creating issues for finance, creating issues in the home. So Paul obviously is, is understanding this. And so he says in verse 36 and 37, um, it's not a sin to do so. Right? It's not a sin to be married. But you must be equally yoked, even though that's not our passage this morning. I want to throw that in there. Um, Even as Paul says in verse 39, that it's okay to be remarried in the Lord. So the point there is that you are married to another believer that you are equally yoked with. But Paul is saying here that it is a matter of conscience. If you think you are dishonoring your betrothed by not marrying her, then marry her. And one of the ways this comes up, uh, not so much in our translation, but if you have an NASB, it'll show is that, um, you know, there, there would be men who is questioning, are, are we dishonoring the one that we are betrothed to if we remain in this celibate state to the point where she goes beyond childbearing years? It talks about the, the flower of her youth, right? Her young childbearing years. And Paul's saying, if that's, if that's weighing on your conscience, right? If that's something that you feel is dishonoring, then marry. You do well to marry. But if you have the self-control to refrain, then you do better during this impending crisis. Lastly, 29 through 35, Paul talks about that the unmarried have the privilege of being concerned about the things of the Lord. And these middle verses here, 29 to 35, really provide kind of the crux of Paul's concern, which is the time is short and you need to be focused on obeying the Lord. And so then he gives this little poem here. Those who have wives, let them be as though they had no wives. Those who weep, let them be as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice, let them be as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy, let them be as though they did not possess. And those who deal with the world, let them be as though they had no dealings with it. The main point of Paul's concern is that our focus is to live unto the Lord, not for the things of the world. 
Is it wrong to rejoice? No, it's not wrong to rejoice. Is it wrong to weep? No, it's not wrong to weep. Is it wrong to own things and have possessions? No. We know this is the case for the rest of these because he says, those who have wives, let them be as though they had no wives. Well, he just said, don't get divorced. And then he says, you do well to marry. So the context of what he's saying here is in light of what we're talking about with this present crisis, what we are concerned about here is that you would live your life unto the Lord. Why? Because the time is short. Now, I would apply this to you in this way, which is your time on this earth is short. It's short in one of two ways. It's short because either the Lord is going to return and you won't live as long as you thought you were, or it's short in the sense that regardless, you have what? I mean, even at the long end of things, let's say some of you push a century. In the blip of, 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 of really of reality, that's such a short span of time. And I think some of us realize that because we look back at our lives and, and we, you, know, you, you get to a point in your life as you're growing up and you say, man, I can't wait to do this, I can't wait to do that. Um, uh, you know, for, for a lot of boys, at least, you know, for a lot of us, it was maybe sports, right? You're like, hey, I'm going to be a pro baseball player when I'm older. And then you, maybe you play in high school and you're like, yeah. I'm and then you get to a point where you recognize, you know what? My baseball years are behind me. Now think about that with the other areas of your life. You get to a point where you say, you know what? What lies behind me is even longer than what lies before me. And before you know it, your life is like that. And you say, where did the time go? And Paul recognizes that. Our time is short. I can't believe that I am, I don't feel old, this is not what I'm saying, but like even being 30, like I, I can't believe, you know, you've hit this point in your life and you go, oh, you know what? I'm not, I still feel like I'm 18, 19 years old in a lot of ways. You know, but then I, you know, hurt my knee snowboarding and, and now it's like, oh, I guess I can't get up like I used to. But I, the point is not to say that, uh, you know, I, I know some of you guys are older than me and you always tell me like, oh, just wait till you get to, four. well, yeah, but I better start recognizing some of these things now, <laughs> right? <laughs> You know, I thought about that, yeah, this is, I thought about that even with my kids recently. It was just, yeah, Ellie's five, Cadge is four. And you know what? Next thing I know, she'll be 10, he'll be nine. And the next thing I know, she'll be 16, he'll be 15. And, and if, I, if, I, if I don't recognize that the time is short, then I'll look back and go, oh, I, I guess I wasted a lot of time here. You know, as, as we live this life as Christians, and I know at this point I'm kind of pulling some application out of this and not hitting exactly about marriage here, but in your day-to-day life, do you recognize that the time is short? I mean, do you, do, you, are you, do you really begin to recognize that it's so important that you live each day as unto the Lord because it may be the last day that you have left?
The unmarried have the privilege of devoting themselves entirely to the Lord. During this present crisis, the unmarried have more freedom for this kind of focus than the married do. Right? The married, you still are called by God to focus and live unto Him as a married man or a married woman. But the difference is, you also have these concerns and responsibilities to your family and to your home. And the unmarried don't have those obligations. So there's a life that they are called to. Right? And this is important because it doesn't mean that if you're single, you just get to focus on yourself. The idea is that while, you're, while you are single, while you are single, and especially if you are called to singleness, your life is about ministry and serving the church. In fact, Paul even brings this up in, when he's writing to Timothy, and he speaks about older widows, and he says, well, you know what? The church should be taking care of them. Why? So that they can devote themselves entirely to the ministry of the church. But this is how it is for the life of singles. Your life is called to be devoted like Paul. Not that everyone is a traveling missionary like Paul, but that you are called to be like him in the sense of I'm no longer tied to a spouse, and so all my life is devoted to serving the Lord without distraction. So singleness is not the freedom to just be all you can be and run after your careers and your passions and hobbies without having to worry about, you know, a spouse or kids dragging you down. Singleness is the unique calling to pour everything that you have into serving Christ. And for some some more application on that, I would also say that you should go back a few weeks and listen to Pastor Keith's sermon a few weeks ago on that, and he gives some good application of what that might look like for you. Um, but to end our time together this morning, you know, God, God has always called certain people to be married, and he has called certain people to be single for his glory. But this is something that God decides based on what would glorify him best. The problem is, here's what I tend to see, especially from people who may be saved later in life, or even from men and ladies from the mission, is some of you are kind of living this idea that marriage will forever be off the table because you've screwed up your marriages in the past, or because of other past sins, And while it's true that God may want you to remain single, don't tell God right now what he can or cannot do. The call to singleness is not a call to revert back to the life of a boyish bachelor where you have all this freedom to be selfish and immature because you're not married. It's a call to pour yourself into ministry. And some of you, he will call again to be married And in the meantime, you need to be pursuing the Lord faithfully, remaining where you are, and trust that he will make that clear in his timing. On the other end, though, are those who are so fixated on relationships that you cannot imagine not being in one. For ladies, this is usually in the form of an unhealthy relationship, or dating unbelievers, or being unequally yoked Christians, because you can't bear the thought of being alone. For men, 
This is usually the premature desire to jump into a relationship, even though most other aspects of your life are a mess, and you have nothing biblically to offer a woman right now. In both cases, there is such a desperation to be in a relationship with a man or a woman that it has become an idol. And God has a tendency to crush the idols we have in our lives. And in some ways, those are very painful depending on how deeply we are connected to them. I mean, how many times, how many times have we seen a brother or a sister fall away because they got into an unhealthy, ungodly relationship prematurely and it led them astray and sometimes sometimes it leads you down a road of consequences that cannot be undone instead both need to focus first on their relationship with the Lord you should be desperate for Christ not for a relationship not for a marriage not for a spouse Desperate for him. And if you know that you have an unhealthy walk with Christ, it is pretty, a pretty clear indication that you will have an unhealthy relationship with your girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse. And you're really in no place to be pursuing that kind of relationship. And so there are times and seasons in life when it is better to remain single so that you can focus on serving Christ and seeking the will of the Father in your life. This is especially important for newer believers. You need to be discipled on how to be a godly husband or a godly wife. If you're a new believer, it's not the time to just be like, all right, I'm a believer, I'm going to go find a girl now. I'm going to go find a man. You need to be discipled. And so the best way to understand Paul's view on marriage in this chapter and on singleness and on divorce is not to let the culture dictate or influence marriage, but rather look to the Lord and what would serve him best. And so here's my final piece of application, which I'm sure like half of you already know because we went through experiencing God together. But some practical application on relationships and engagements and getting married, or if you should get into any sort of relationship like this, out of singleness, or even if you should remain single, has God confirmed it through his word? Has he confirmed it through prayer? Has he confirmed it through the counsel of the church? And has he confirmed it through circumstances? Through his word, right? How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through scripture. It is his God-breathed revelation to us. So we know if God isn't speaking to us about marriage or singleness in the word of God, right, then that's not what he has for us, right? But also through prayer. Are you giving this to the Lord in prayer? Are you listening for how he would answer your prayers, the counsel of the church. This is one, in fact, I think even in Experience of God, he talks about how this can be such a forgotten one. We're not individuals. We are part of a body of Christ. If you are going to be making major life decisions, it is best for you to get the counsel of godly men and women who have gone before you. Amen? Amen. If you try to do it on your own, which we've seen countless times, it doesn't work very well. And then lastly, is through circumstances. That one should be pretty clear. If there's no girl, there's no, no relationship, right? If there's no guy, there's no relationship. So um, it's through all these things. And I would also say circumstances being 
that it's not just, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking more to the men here, but I understand it's for the ladies too, but, you know, it's not just the first girl or guy that catches your eye. You want a godly spouse, right? So, if you're called to singleness or if you're called to be married, it needs to be confirmed in these ways. So I hope that helped wrap up chapter 7. And uh, if you have any questions, feel free to come speak to me about it, or uh, Pastor Keith, or uh, John, or Ralph. And I would even say, you know, many of our our deacons as well, and deaconesses, uh, we have deacons that are married, and we have deacons that are single. We have deaconesses that are married. We have deaconesses that are single. And they're all devoted to the Lord. Right? And so, if that's where you feel called, then find somebody like that in the church and be discipled. Right? Grow and learn. Let's pray. And then we'll have communion. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this morning, and I do pray, God, that, you know, with a chapter like 1 Corinthians 7, it is so important that we really look at the context, and we, we see that Paul, the, the cry of Paul's heart is that we would live unto you, God, that we would be focused on you, that we would be ministers of the gospel in the body of Christ. Some people will get to do that married, others will get to do that single, I also pray, Lord, that we recognize no matter what you have called us to, really it is a blessing because it is from you. And now I pray, Lord, as we get into this time of communion, that it would be a time of remembering the cross and the resurrection, and it would also be a time of celebration where we look forward to your return, that we would recognize that as we take communion together, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, this is a proclamation of the gospel.